Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 74, the Halloween special. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum, the vampire. <laughs> I'm JT White's monster. <laughs> you know, on the first take, you very smoothly said the ghost of JT White. <laughs> I and wasn't going to repeat it. I don't know. You could repeat it for us. It's I, just I two just, of us. I know, but still, I don't like. I don't like you guys hearing the same bits over. Yeah, we're not like entertainers or anything like that. We're we're too real for that. Yeah. To pull back the curtain a little, yeah, we did run uh, a take and lost it, or it was bad, or something like that. So you know, take two on the extended clip Halloween special, our triple feature. Yes, we're talking about three movies this week. Three stabs to the heart. Three stooges. <laughs> three our- stooges being killed. <laughs> well, our three stooges are John Carpenter, Wes Craven. And Roger Watkins. Which one's Larry? Which one's Curly? Which one's Mo? Toby know. Hooper off to the side is Shemp. He'll come in later. John Carpenter is Mo. Okay. I, I, I need to watch more Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mo is their leader, and that's, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could see Wes Craven occupying a Curly kind of role. You know, he, he has the humor in him to do the yucks. Roger Watkins, yeah. I don't think there's really any other option for him. But John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness will be the first film. And then we'll move on to Wes Craven's New Nightmare uh, before going to Roger Watkins's Last House on Dead End Street. Um, Malcolm, you've you've seen all of these movies before, <laughs> right? You're an expert. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of the resident expert here at Extended Clip when it comes to movies. You're the and horror guy. <laughs> You're the one with the Fangoria subscription who True. writes for Bloody Disgusting on the side. Yeah, I write for like some website that's called what, NakedTitsplatter.com. <laughs> Something real gross. Um, no, I you know, I like the theme we picked today. You know, some meta horror filmmaking. You know, movies about movies. Now, I like, I like um, New Nightmare, In the Mouth of Madness. They're like damn, like, what if a movie was real? That'd be kind of scary. We make scary movies. Last House on Dead End Street is like, let's make a real movie. Like, let's make something for real. Let's split a person open for real. So I think it's a, I think it's a good pairing. JT, you also saw these movies. <laughs> what are your initial thoughts? Um, this was a, a creepy, creepy selection, uh, boys. I was absolutely shitting my pants. Um, yeah, I mean, Mouth of Madness was the only one I had seen before, which, I mean, this just reaffirmed that this is a stone-cold classic, but I think, um, I mean, we've talked a lot about Eddie being terrified of In the Mouth of Madness, (laughs) um, over this entire month, but, um, Last House on Dead End Street really, like, got me as well. That is just, like, it's some fucked up shit there, and just shook me to my core. Yeah, Last House on Dead End Street is the most scared I've been all October, I think, other than throughout October thinking about In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> uh, Eddie's officially scared of movies now. I'm only scared of the concept of In the Mouth of Madness. Movies don't scare me. Interesting. But the concept of In the Mouth of Madness, well, the idea of In the Mouth of Madness. Well, well, well why don't you explain that idea? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, In the Mouth of Madness is a film by John Carpenter from 1994 and it stars Sam Neill as uh, John Trent and insurance claims investigator and uh, he's sent off to find a reclusive best-selling author Sutter Kane whose work drives some readers to the point of violent insanity. Trent with Kane's editor Styles find themselves in the fictional world of Kane's oeuvre uh, the town of, of Hobbs End. Uh, metafiction collapses upon itself and reality disintegrates and you know we all go a little crazy sometimes, don't we? <laughs> yeah, this the the conclusion of this movie is like go nuts. Yeah. Go crazy, go stupid, you know? <laughs> Just which lose I, it. Which I like it. Lose yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which M&M needle drop to put in, but I'll be thinking about that later tonight. After the opening framing device where you're in the hospital, which is really great, especially having seen the film before because you know, and we talked about Ghost of Mars recently, which also has this uh, flashback structure to it, but it's so clear, like, the weight of everything that you're going to see is on Sam Neill's face in those opening scenes. And it's not just because he drew crosses all over his face, which is pretty <laughs> funny, uh, but just, like, there's so much in his expression when he's lighting up a cigarette and beginning to tell the story. It's so haunting. It's really one of my favorite, like, lead performances in a horror movie, for sure. No, the opening opening sequence in the the hospital is very skillfully done. I love the musical transition of the the carpenters, how it's used, and <laughs> like a you just get a real sense of the environment. Kind of reminded me of almost uh, fuck. I really a dress to kill kind of the in, uh, asylum and dress to kill. Just a bunch of crazy motherfuckers. But instead, you just you just hear you hear their voices, and you you already know what's going on. Because you know Carpenter, he always said like, oh, I you know I want you know movies to make music to or whatever yeah. right you know he knows every time there's like a musical note or a musical a point that's made musically in his movies i always find it just really astute and the music in this is amazing from the opening credits too where it's just like at the printing press uh, making sutter kane's new book to that hard rock riff man just like oh my god you know some may accuse it of being butt rock but when carpenter is just like having fun playing old-time classic rock and roll much more fun is to be had in cinema i gotta say no the rock the rock soundtrack immediately immediately put me on my feet like i knew was, this this is a high energy movie and it puts you in there yeah right away <laughs> i, I kind of like the late his late turn towards like kind of butt rockish yeah kind of soundtracks it's kind of endearing and I don't know. It's just it's high energy. What, what's that James Murphy line? I, I heard your friends are throwing away their synthesizers and buying guitars, something like that, and losing my edge. <laughs> <laughs> he predicted the Carpenterian turn. <laughs> After the opening uh, framing device at the hospital, we flash back to the beginning where it feels like an investigative noir, you know, and you see. Uh, him on the job as a claims investigator in this room, you know, shaking down this guy uh, for insurance fraud. And he's like smoking and there's the Venetian blinds and it all looks very like classically beautiful. Uh, and of course, that's just going to like lead you into the horror. But I really like that uh, opening setup before he starts to go crazy where like the mood that the film takes at the start is already very unsettling. 
Yeah, I agree. I think with Sam Neill's character, I mean, he's like pretty loosely drawn, but I think that like he's like enough of a prick where you're kind of like hoping like someone who is an insurance claims investigator (laughs) is such a piece of shit job to have that you really want something bad to happen to him. And he takes so much pride in it, too. Like he's like he acts like he's like a detective or something like that. And I think I think there isn't like any strong characterization in this movie and it doesn't need it but i think um kind of sam neill's character is definitely kind of like playing off of like the cliches of like a hard-boiled noir detective and it's it's kind of funny to see him navigate what turns into like a a world of horror like i think it's i like that he's uh he's constantly denying like horror movies you know aren't real it's kind of like it's kind of like uh this is kind of like the horror movie for people we're always pointing out, like, I would just get in the car and drive away. Yeah. <laughs> the horror movies. It's like, no, the horror doesn't escape you. Here. Yeah, no, the world of horror doesn't allow you to make the quote-unquote easy choices like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first glimpse of real horror that we get um, within the story, because even before this, we get the first instance of just, like, hardcore horror montage where it'll just be, like, 20 seconds or so of Carpenter just flashing these horrifying images on screen that'll rip occur throughout the film uh but then we get him at a diner talking to someone he had just busted a claim for <laughs> and then uh the man we later find out is Sutter Kane's agent I yeah. guess yeah his agent busts through the window with an axe and asks if he reads Sutter Kane in just one of the great like I every time that scene just like pumps me up I, I get excited watching that scene <laughs> and i think it's pretty funny too in yeah, a way. Exactly. Like, this movie is kind of funnier and I'll, like i ha- i mean carpenter's usually he he has his humor but this one i feel like sam neill delivers a just as good comedic performance as he does a horror performance yeah that was one thing that struck me about like the very beginning is i think like sam neill's like first line is like uh sorry about the kick in the balls it was just like a lucky strike and it's like weird that it takes you into a world that's already like intense and disturbing but i mean well it just sort of relates perfectly to the end where sam neil's just laughing away mm-hmm. he's like he's he's joker pilled yeah and i man when the guy with the axe gets shot five times by those cops and you just get that like really quick shot of those two bozo cops that are just like skinny guys in their early 20s looking kind of confused after they just killed the guy with the axe just to like foreshadow the next scene as Sam Neill is like walking home at night and sees a cop just like wailing on a guy that was spray painting and he asks if he wants some too (laughs) yeah kind of building off the blocks of uh they live yeah exactly uh, no trust in the government. Of course, the state yeah. violence is the real monster. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, like, while a lot of like the violence of the world around it is like sort of is because of the fiction, I think it presents like an interesting reality of like what I mean, sort of the notion of like fiction as religion, sort of becoming a thing. I think works because it's like the world around you is so shitty that you have no other option but to retreat into fantasy worlds. So he takes the job with Sutter Kane's publishing company uh, to go and find the missing author. And he has to read some of the books. And what do you know? The auteur theory rings true. And there's a strong narrative that runs through the the entire uh, body of work. And, uh, you know, uh, Sam Neill cutting off the... 
uh, covers of the books and gluing them together. That was like uh, JT making spreadsheets about Friedberg and Seltzer movies a couple <laughs> weeks ago. No, I was thinking about a lot of Sam Neill's uh, stuff. It's like kind of like a guy getting into vulgar autorism. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I don't usually read that horror crap, but this stuff was pretty engrossing. <laughs> you know. Funny thing is that they got a better written than they expect, you know. They sort of get to you in a way. I don't know if it's style of writing or his use of description or whatever but <laughs> that's you know baby's first tony scott movie like, <laughs> yeah, i don't know what, you know it's trashy but there's something there you know <laughs> and i think i think this is why i love carpenter because that's i mean that's in uh they live as well kind of him trashing mm-hmm. on the critics he's always willing to trash on people who are not willing to engage in low art and he takes real pride in being like a genre director and that's why he's so good at it and as he's on the way looking for Hobbes End with Styles, you know, uh, and she says that what's scary about Sutter Kane's work is if reality shared his point of view. And then right after that, you know, you get this portal, this otherworldly portal through space that takes you into Hobbes End. And then Hobbes End, the fictional place where all of Sutter Kane's books take place, then becomes reality. And you got to deal with that sometimes, you know, horror movies becoming your own reality. It's not fun. We go through it sometimes, <laughs> but you just got to find a way out. Yeah. You go to that small town, you know, everyone's looking at you weird for being a city slicker, <laughs> stuff like that. It's happened to us. Uh, I love like when they're first looking around like the ghost town, you know, and it's a perfectly pristine old timey small town. And there's that like really long rack focus. There's a really long shot of the two characters like just looking around kind of and it's a kind of like dirty shot. You can't tell what's in the way. And then it just like has this super long rack focus to being a close up on an axe with blood on it. Yeah. No, the axe work in like this movie is something that stood out to me like the way it happens at the start and like somewhere somewhere towards the back end too but you get like this almost like a symphony of axe uh slashing where it's like each axe will be like perfectly like um just ahead of the uh, other axe when people are swinging it to where yeah. you have like this almost windmill effect of axes that's you know the the combat and like the staging of mass groups of people and this is very like slyly uh, really great. Like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't call that much attention to itself, but it's like we talked about uh, with Ghosts of Mars on the Patreon a couple weeks ago, where it's just like these hordes of people at certain times. Even though you know we were saying right now in the beginning, or not right now, uh, when they first get there, it is a ghost town. But as the more uh, people of the town start coming out and walking on the streets, it seems like you just can't avoid these messed up people who are <laughs> infected with the disease of horror fiction. And I love how it gets the kids first too like mm-hmm. i love carpenter's view of like how the kids are going evil and you kind of you kind of feel this in new nightmare of course it's it's done in a different way but it, it is kind of funny to see like who does this horror world affect first it's the kids who've gone bad yeah yeah that's one funny thread between this and new nightmare that i think is like i mean in and of itself like very ridiculous mm-hmm. that horror fiction <laughs> is corrupting the minds of kids mm-hmm. that it poses any serious threat and it's also like, a, I don't know, the kid in New Nightmare feels in line with other uh, 90s, even early 2000s kid roles, you know, like mm-hmm. even like Phantom Menace or something like that or Jingle All the Way. <laughs> uh, but at this one, it's just like the kids from Village of the Damned, like, it's True. Just, like just fucked up little demons that John Carpenter creates for this movie. It's just the kids from Trailer Park Boys who just throw like rocks and shit at Ricky's car. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god what what is uh the little girl say to styles like you're my mommy now it's mommy's day <laughs> <laughs> and it is rough seeing how like uh you know styles like admits at one point that it's slightly a con but it's getting out of hand you know and she's also trying to get out of it and she is also subsumed by the horror and gets taken over uh, when she meets with Sutter Kane once he's finally revealed and you know she feels up the back of his head which is all brainy or whatever <laughs> yeah the effects in here are going crazy like <laughs> yeah right when they kind of start going effect heavy it seems like there's like not gag but just like scene after scene that you oh my god yeah uh like the old lady who she's she's in twin peaks too right isn't she like uh miss tremont or whatever yeah 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 she uh running the hotel in hobbs End. what a great performance there where she has it together for so long and then the last scene she's just like uh, I forget what she says about the painting, but she curses at it or something like that. And then like her husband is chained down below yeah. in just his underwear. And then it's revealed that she just like has tentacles. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, you know, a porn addict's fantasy, right? You know, you're getting yeah. domed by a tentacle porn goddess. <laughs> Old lady. I don't know. Someone's got to be into that. That's got to be the perfect <laughs> thing for one person. I love how uh, Sutter Kane refers to the book that he's writing in the mouth of madness because, you know, like New Nightmare, we realize around halfway that, you know, it's just we're just witnessing the author's new work in progress, you know. And so he refers to in the mouth of madness as the new Bible that helps you see. And then he basically just like waterboards uh, Styles with the book, like he just shoves her face into it. And then we get another one of those sequences of all those horrifying images in a row uh it's it's insane like the the use of montage there and just like rapid cutting and you know i guess putting together the meaning of the image after the fact because it's moving too fast to process really adds to the horror in here because those images just stick with you after a while you know and i think it's like a smart way because i think carpenter is realizing how people process horror movies maybe even you know movies in general it's like a lot Mm -hmm. of these still of course you remember scenes but like a lot of these distinct images the distinct frames that kind of stick with you and a lot of the frames he's using in like these uh, in the mouth of madness uh brainwashing scenes are actual stills that are within the movie right i think so it's like yeah it's just a uh, carpenter just distilling it in a very smart way so uh yeah at a certain point Sam Neill has no choice but to try to escape. There's a scene where he uh, is like driving, uh, running people over almost <laughs> like he, he's just driving in a loop, you know, and he thinks he's getting away and then the lightning strikes and you get that same angle on the car and then you're back driving in the same direction through the town. And like you said earlier, for the people who say, just get in the car and drive away, this you know, exemplifies the fact that horror movies do not allow you to do that. You're going to have to confront the horror you know <laughs> yeah exactly and I, I, th- I that's why i love this scene too because it is it's also you know just as beautifully shot as you know anything in the movie too of like the um just the way he shoots that car on the highway in general mm-hmm. kind of like a like a in complete darkness and you can only see like the frame of the front window of the yeah. car it's very skillfully done but yeah i do like this kind of looping kind of nightmarish you know you can't escape uh horror scene just because it's like you you know as a you know carpenter fan going into this you know the conventions of horror right you know how it works and it's just like you know you know it's something's just gonna topple over 
eventually and it's just funny to see you know he literally can't get away and watching him drive you know watching him prepare he's like all right i'm gonna drive into that crowd of people (laughs) and he just you know stops when he sees um you know the woman he came with it's just a very skillfully done scene so he eventually does get out at a scene that climaxes with like the wall of a room being a page from the book and uh the author like tearing a hole through it and him having to run in the opposite direction uh really just stunning image like looking the reverse of that as well where you see the characters like peering out into whatever space that is you know in the book uh but then he gets back home and you realize you can never go home you know (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's another classic horror trope right like you know even though these things you know i've escaped this horror even though he kind of hasn't this is kind of part of the horror plot it's like it still sticks with you and it messes you up for life and yeah in his case you know it's just like i'll pick up an axe myself yeah uh, i mean the scenes where he's just like lurking about town nervously you know and then when he finally goes back to the publisher and they're like yeah you turned in the manuscript six months ago it's just like shocking kind of uh, and really depressing kind of. And then it lifts you back up at the end as he walks into the movie adaptation of In the Mouth of Madness. Not unlike Jerry Lewis and his final film Smorgasbord going to see its own movie uh, at the very end. And, you know, he's cracking up like uh, Robert De Niro at Problem Child in Cape Fear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's just going ape, having a good old time. <laughs> No, I love the ending, and it's like, you know, I can't help think of like, like something like Inland Empire too when I see mm-hmm. that because it's just like, you know, you losing your identity in a piece of work, and then of course they they take different paths to get there, but it it is just like his solution his solution is just like you know what i'll sit back and laugh like, yeah <laughs> and you know what what why do we go to the movies to be entertained i think that's what john carpenter's trying to say there any final thoughts on this one jt before we wrap it up yeah i mean while i feel like i definitely could see your angle of being afraid of like the the notion of being consumed by art or like fiction and going crazy in that regard I think this speaks to a lot of fears I had as like an early like little Christian boy when I'm first you first discover like the Calvinist notion of like predestination I think there's a lot of stuff there that really taps into something that like I don't know as a child really frightened me the idea of like oh man everything in your life is already set and determined and then uh Trent is just sort of wrestling that with that himself that he's like you cannot fight with anything like it's already planned out you just have to go along with it and I mean I think his ultimate decision to just sort of fuck it it's this is kind (laughs) of funny then um is uh is a powerful one in like the face of powerlessness but I'm going to give this one uh, four and a half bullets. Uh, I also love that when he's watching the movie at the end, the version of the movie he's watching is just him screaming. Like <laughs> the whole movie is reduced to him screaming and saying, this is reality. This is not reality. <laughs> I'm going five bullets on this one. This is, I, you know, a few episodes ago, Malcolm said that this was better than the thing. And I, I, I didn't quite protest uh, but in my head, I did. Yeah. But now I think it is. Be- it's it's top tier right. masterpiece level carpenter for me. 
Uh, and just like, as I stated, yeah, the ideas behind it linger with me in a really terrifying way that movies don't, uh, because of how much movie watching consumes my life, especially now that I'm watching more horror films, man. A lot of scary stuff out there. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've kind of felt that too, where like I, I've been watching a lot of horror movies, pretty much exclusively horror movies for October. I'm like kind of in a down Mood, or just kind of in a strange mood. You I mean, know, I last week why. you expressed homicidal desires. <laughs> <laughs> you could check it out on last week's podcast. <laughs> uh, what about you for a bullet rating on this one? I'm gonna give it four bullets. I, you know, and I, I don't want to act like I hate the thing or you know anything like that. I just, I just think there's some John Carpenter movies that are better, and this is, you know, this is one of them. And like, you know, much like the thing, this has like great, very inventive, like special effects work that is just like, just like fucking candy. It's Halloween candy. <laughs> so to speak you know Ooh, all right halloween segment number one candy uh i don't know uh i'm gonna say i like a nice reese's cup okay i'm kind of a fruity kind of guy and oh, i yeah. like fruity candy yeah i've never noticed <laughs> and uh i don't know i want to say like maybe like a hairy bow gummy bear or like a, a like a skittles i, I fuck with those you know, Skittles were a favorite of mine as a child, but I've moved on to bigger and better things. <laughs> yeah, you've grown up. Such as Diet Coke. Uh, we'll be right back on Extended Clip. What? I'm not insane. You hear me? I'm not insane! Relax, buddy. You're awake now. This is not a solitaire story. This is not reality. Not reality. Not reality. This is... Yeah, I'm just trying to pass you the rock. What's that A.O. Scott line? In basketball, pass the rock means pass the ball. <laughs> that's how he opened his review of uh, High Flying Bird, I believe. Oh, really? Oh, my God. That's awesome. <laughs> we got a basketball master amongst us. <laughs> uh, and we're back on extended clip. Malcolm in the middle, everyone's favorite segment. Do we have a Halloween edition this week, or did you watch? Yeah, non -scary? yeah, man. I only watch horror movies in October, except for last year. And um, you know what? I you know I said I looked at the movies. Right, we took a look at the movies, and we saw that we're watching Last House on Dead End Street. Right, mm. so I was like, well, I haven't seen Last House on the left. I should probably check that out because that came before that. I don't know. Is that the sequel, you know? I don't think it is. It's not. But that's also Wes Craven's first movie. Yeah. We're about to talk about him on New Nightmare. Well, his first uh, theatrical True. release, he made some pornographic films before some that, hot I believe. films. But porn is an art, so it's not now. All right. <laughs> I'll have some scholars in your DMs shortly. Anything related to sex is not intellectual. But um, um, The Last House on uh, the left, I keep wanting to call it Last House on Dead End Street, but The Last House on the left great movie it's kind of like a, a one th i like movies and like especially grindhouse horror movies that feel like like everything's down to its bare essentials you know kind of like a low budget and like um i love this one here because it's really it just uses like a location of the woods and like a parent's house and that's pretty much it and you have like these three sadistic uh rapists coming around and they, they lure in some you know some young girls trying to smoke some weed for the first time and you know uh go very sadistic on them and it's it's very it's it's kind of like a another evil hippie movie, right? These are some hippies that have gone sour. Like they, uh, this is a, a, fam a family unit too, as the three sadistic rapists have a, a son, 
and the son who's hooked on dope. So he, he can't really do anything unless, he, you know, he, he won't get his dope. They won't give him dope. So it is kind of just a very, like, you know, sad movie from a distance. But it's also just a very visceral one, too. You know, like a lot of documentary-style shooting. And I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed it a lot. I also saw The Hills Have Eyes as well, the original. And I feel like it's kind of working with a lot of the same concepts there. You know, instead we have, like, a kind of group of like deformed cannibals who live on the outskirts of society kind of like taking back at like a suburban familial unit and it is you know people accuse it of being kind of like joyless or craven kind of hating his characters but i think i don't know there's just something really nasty about this one and i think that's why people reacted you know against it so hard when it came out and it has a re- it's it's a reason that it's it's a classic we respect the classics <laughs> always respect the classics on extended clip jt what did you watch? Um, I watched a, something that's like a little bit of a different kind of horror. Mm. More like the horrors of the real world that we're still confronted with today. Okay. But it also deals with one a Halloween candy. Um, well, not really Halloween. It's not set during that. But this is, I think, the only like non-hammer like horror film this was their like one issue kind of movie. Hmm. It's 1960s Never Take Sweets from a Stranger <laughs> uh, by Cyril Frankel. Um, and it's about like, it, it was really fucked up. I was like uh, sold right away. Um, it's about a English family that's living in Canada. Um, and the father is like the principal and his daughter and another little girl um go are lured over by this old man who has like sort of a, a powerful position in the town um he has the little girls dance naked for him oh. for candy you don't see that like okay. on screen it's just like you see like over the title credits like him like lure the kids over and the old man pretty much like i don't think he says a line throughout the whole thing but then most of the film is kind of like a courtroom drama, sort of like small town sort of thriller where it's like um, the son of the old man is like, look, we like run shit in this town. You're not from here. Like that little 10 year old slut. She's a fucking liar. And it's like I he's like, run it. <laughs> he's like he, he literally like threatens the dad with like, I will like fuck her up so hard in that courtroom. Like she's going to be actually traumatized. And they're like the police in the town are like, oh, yeah, it's whatever. He didn't he didn't rape him. He didn't kill him. Like they're yeah. fine, which is like. It's very, very frightening that this is still like kind of like I mean, the, the way that the powerful can get away with shit like this just under the guise of, well, like they're lucky to get away. Yeah. And then in the courtroom, there's like it's a, a fucking brutal scene where like they're like cross examining the little girl after she's like testified about like what happened. And she's like. The old man is like creepy, and then he's like, "Oh well, like, did you actually fucking do this?" Like, he, yeah. like a, a, it's weird to see an attorney just shout at a little girl and be like, "How you like do you dance like other times? Do you like have you?" He's like, "Yeah, I've danced like naked before for like like my dad," and it's like th- obviously in an innocent like childish kind of a way that's like implied there. But then they just decide to uh, close the case. The parents are like, Damn. I I don't want to like traumatize our little girl by making her like these court proceedings carry out any longer. And then spoiler, 
the old man winds up killing, uh, raping and killing the, the her friend. Um, but the 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 main girl manages to escape, that's, and it's like it's fucked up. <laughs> that's yeah, that's very fucking brutal. I've never never heard of that one before. But that that reminds me of kind of something I forgot to bring up with uh, Last House on the Left. Is kind of like a lot of these you know brutal scenes are contrasted by like these two bumbling like fat cops, and like you get like comedic like boom 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 boom, and there's like a. There's a, a scene where like they try to get a woman to give him a ride, but she's hauling a lot of chickens. And so like they have to ride on the top of the truck, basically. And she just stops short and they both fall off. It's pretty funny. Pretty funny stuff. And like I think I was reading old reviews at the time and people were like yeah, I think people still say this today. It's like it's so tasteless, like him contrasting like these rape scenes with like these bumbling cops, but it's like, don't you think that's part of the point that like these yeah. police have been ineffectual with dealing with these cases exactly and there's also another great scene where like they go out to you know investigate a scene leave their car and a bunch of hippies take their car they like stop to let the cop uh, catch up and then they speed off a lot of pranks done to cops in uh, last house on the left always always in support of pranks in general true I, yeah you know, i don't we don't need to get political on this show but I think it can be a nonpartisan uh, <laughs> position to be pro prank. True. I hey, you know, if he if that was a prank on some activists, I would find it just as funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think pranking the police is good though. They're like a lot of horror movies do like hinge on like yeah. the bumbling, like the very much the reality of that like cops are ineffectual and cannot stop like either the imagined or real world horrors. There's a gang of pranksters roaming the streets and they're calling themselves Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> True though. They should maybe like Antifa could get off on like parody law or something like that <laughs> they just a bunch of antifa guys with like slingshots in their back pockets <laughs> they wear like the hats with the propeller on them yeah some bart simpson like shorts <laughs> anyone's a uh, an anti-fascist organizer hit us up we got some ideas how about you, Eddie? Have you watched any scary movies this week? Yeah, I watched one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Uh, it's a 2014 film. You know, a lot of people say the 2010s weren't a really great decade for horror, but this one scared the shit out of me. A film by Jason Reitman, <laughs> uh, Men, Women, and Children. Uh-oh. Well, uh, I think you saw yourself uh, in the, the masturbating character, right? <laughs> is that what scared There's you? multiple <laughs> masturbating characters. <laughs> That's what's great about this Yes, movie. there is a disaffected coomer, but you also have Adam Sandler trying to spank off once in a while, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why I watched it. I, uh, I I finished up the Sandman filmography. I rewatched some of the ones I hadn't seen since I was a teen. Uh, and I posted a list of how I would rank them. And Men, Women, and Children comes in at the bottom. Uh, it's an ensemble film, a mosaic, a magn Jason Reitman's Magnolia. Uh, you know, some of the threads in this film. Let's see. Ansel Elgort finds out that we're actually made up of particles and like that the scope of humanity is kind of small in the grand scheme of the universe. And instead of smoking weed about it, he logs on and games into the void and quits the football team. Uh, his love interest, Caitlin Dever of Booksmart fame, uh, she can't catch a break from her dang mom. So uh, she becomes a Tumblr girl and quirk posts into the void. And uh, Judy Greer, she was a failed actor as a, as a youngster. And so she creates child pornography with her daughter and sells subscriptions to dirty men in the void of the online. 
Jason Reitman thinks that the essence of being online is just to drain the soul uh, and like any like humanity or freedom or love out of a person. Uh, Adam Sandler almost gets his own like pina colada song moment as him and his wife both turn to the internet during their disaffected marriage. But instead he gets cucked by the only non-white person in the movie uh, and in all of Texas, according to this movie. Jason Reitman thinks that humanity's transgressions are like negated by our place in the universe. But in our current extremely difficult times, we could all do to log off and be nicer to each other. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's absolutely repugnant trash. And like the pretension of it all, linking it all to the Carl Sagan cosmos stuff is laughable and I'm telling you, if it was split into six parts and put on HBO this year, it would win multiple Emmys for sure. Yeah, it is. It is kind of funny. Like this does seem like something that would garner positive attention from, you know, like dumbasses or something like that. And I'm trying It's like it's pretty panned across the board, though, which, you know, give it up for the critical consensus, I guess. But uh, I I think people have gotten even stupider since 2014. So I I think it would have been met with a warmer reception in a post to this is us era. Yeah, I think this is greeted with a very warm reception. You know, you make it to where they're doing like Zoom monologues instead of, you know, things actually (laughs) happening. Then people would be like, wow, this speaks to our current moment yeah there is a lot of like texting on screen and like screens on screen and stuff and i don't think i've ever seen a film more committed to that with like without making it even a little bit visually interesting you know yeah just no way in in terms of style it's just like the most bland thing ever i remember seeing a trailer for this uh seeing some you know garbage indie movie probably and um seeing sandler in it really you know kind of tickled my imagination like he's like is is he gonna like cheat on his wife you is know, he gonna watch... bust that nut yeah are we gonna yeah. see sandman jerk off and that's kind of like what my main thing going into it was yeah. and i was even then as a, as a young boy i realized what i was watching was yeah i'd much rather have a sandman movie where there's an old lady making a joke about jacking <laughs> off than like the morality of him using his son's computer to masturbate because his wife won't fuck him anymore because like the last time they fucked was nine eleven, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've, you know, I don't even know if that's true or not, but it's totally believable. Well, because it seems like they've literally never fucked, and it's always been yeah. that bad. And then, like, uh, they're getting interviewed about nine eleven <gasps> because uh, oh. one of the school assignments uh, is a teacher writing nine uh, eleven on the board and saying, "I want you to tell me what you think about this number and <laughs> interview someone who was alive for it." Uh, and so they interview adam sandler and his wife and that's when it comes out that one time they did have sex and it was on (laughs) 9-11 that's like the ending of that robert pattinson movie remember me like you see them having sex and you zoom out and you realize that they're in the world trade center really (laughs) that's not how the movie he just he's not having sex but like he's 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 just staring he's just staring out the window and it's like they cut to a classroom and it's like all right Write today's date on your paper, and it's like September 11th, <laughs> uh, 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 2001, and then you get the slow zoom out, realize who's in the World Trade Center. That Cut rules. to credits. Shout out Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> uh, 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 I also did watch a normal horror movie, uh, like an actual horror movie, that is. I wouldn't call it normal by any means, but this morning I watched Mario Bava's A Bay of Blood from 1971, and you know it has like an old lady who controls this beautiful piece of swampland uh, killed in the very beginning, and a really nasty like hanging execution of an old lady in a wheelchair uh one of the lowest nooses in history 
yeah, and so after she dies, we see some more people come but not go, and some you know classic teen party slasher stuff, and you know they all get killed off before you even realize what's going on. There's a guy with just like a squid on his face, uh, and just tons of like really provocative imagery and like very strange v- and visceral violence leading to a very backloaded exposition dump, like an hour into this eighty-minute film that completely uh, recontextualizes everything that comes before and perfectly sets up a totally gonzo finale. Like, I can't spoil the end. Have you have you seen A Bay of Blood? Yeah, but I literally don't remember. The very last thing is one of the funniest things. I'll, I'll cut it out. Yeah. I mean, I'll just won't say it. In case, yeah, JT. Yeah. Because, yeah. look, it's on YouTube. It's 80 minutes. Go watch it. Uh, hilarious ending in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just like he's match cutting in camera movement and he's also match cutting on like decapitations and like weird shit like that. And just every trick in the book is being deployed and it's just like total stylistic joy. Uh, so go check that one out. We'll be right back on Extended Clip. Critics are raving. Men, Women, and Children is a movie that could change your life. Have you ever done this before? It's compelling and provocative. Have you hooked up yet? Oh my God. Relevant. You know, they call this new nightmare, but so much of this is trapped in the past. Wow. <laughs> I think it's I need to rewatch the, first the movie one. now. Like, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I'm glad, like, I knew nothing about New Nightmare going in, and I'm glad I watched, like, the night beforehand, uh, the first one, because mm-hmm. it, uh, what a good pair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I've only seen the first one and the uh, second one, which is also very good. But I loved Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is what we're talking about now. Nice. Nice organic open, you know, it's pure conversation flowing. <laughs> so I like that's what good podcasters do. Uh, so Heather Loggenkamp plays herself and the Nightmare on Elm Street world plays reality in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh, Heather receives phone calls and burnt letters from Freddy himself as Wes Craven writes the new entry in the series. Uh, her husband, a special effects man working on Freddy's new glove, is the first victim, and Heather, or Nancy, uh, must protect her child from Freddy because Freddy does some messed up stuff to kids, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's it's a little ambiguous, but he'd take him out to some sort of location, and I don't know. Once you you can't be exporting kids. Look, protect your children. That's all I'm saying. That's true. Hollywood makes the sick pervert filth. <laughs> you know about, <laughs> about abducting children, and like, and then by the fourth one, you like him because he says jokes like, "I'm about to slash you, motherfucker." You're like, "Freddy's <laughs> Freddy's so cool." Like maybe maybe if I did what he did, I I could be cool like him. Open mic, Freddy. Uh, but I love how like the the structural damage of the Northridge earthquake being you know incorporated uh, into it just further teases out the complications between reality and fiction and the people who make fiction uh, that are kind of an intermediary between the two. Uh, you know, Craven doesn't necessarily come away with a grand thesis on the effects of making horror, uh, but you know, it raises enough questions, and it's a it's a f- fun movie into itself. You know, no, yeah, I think there's because I think there's a lot of ways he could have taken this. He could have, um, you know, over intellectualized it, and like I don't I don't think he goes there because it's this movie's pretty clever. You know what I mean? But it's it is more concerned about just kind of like messing around with the Elm Street universe and seeing like. Where can we take this? What could Freddie mm-hmm. do now with like these new parameters I'm setting up? And you know, I think it's 
it's pretty effective. Yeah. How'd you feel about this one? Oh, yeah. I definitely really dug this a whole lot. I mean, with the, the whole earthquake stuff was really fun because it's like, I mean, it feels like what my mom's conception of L.A. is that there are constantly earthquakes happening. But just uh, beyond that, like, I, I feel like you ve- see very little of Freddy in this, actually, mm-hmm. until like the later end. Yeah, and you get to see a little Robert England as himself and Robert England in the Freddy costume hyping up a daytime talk show <laughs> audience. One of the funniest things in any horror movie. Him hyping up a bunch of people that wrote signs and uh, or uh, made signs and like stood in the CBS parking lot or whatever for an hour to watch a daytime talk show. <laughs> now, what I think is interesting about this movie is, you know, I had seen this a while back and I kind of remembered it being, you know, zanier or kind of like more madcap. And th- this is a real measured like family drama almost yeah. like within its first hour, which kind of. But I think I think the kind of the horror stuff that he's working with, like uh, before we get to Freddy, is also interesting too. Like I feel like the the mise en scène he's working with when we have the earthquake is just so like uh, violent in a sense to yeah. where it's like, it, or and also kind of like just wobbly and disorientating to where he's. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of thoughts put into the image making with this one, and like a lot of shots supposed to convey a lot of meaning and the northridge earthquake stuff also brings a a personal layer to it you know uh, people may know that we record in the valley but the epicenter of the northridge earthquake less than a mile from where we are recording right now uh and you know hey look i'm not gonna say i was there Uh, but you know, it's something that has definitely shaped like my local upbringing or whatever. So it's always, you know, neat to see that incorporated into a movie. I think, I think she lives in the Valley too. Cause like, there's Mm -hmm. like a shot where I see a couple street signs and it's like mission Hill street or something like that. I'm like, yeah, yeah. they, they originally planned to use earthquakes as like a structuring device kind of, because in Mm -hmm. the first half of this film, there's an earthquake every like 15 minutes seemingly. (laughs) Uh, but like the Northridge earthquake structural damage that took place throughout the Valley, uh, apparently the production crew just like kind of went around town shooting exteriors that had all this damage. And that's fucking great B roll to cut to obviously. Yeah. (laughs) Well, at least they made something good out of it. No, exactly. You know, it produced great art and a great generation of valley dudes such as myself. Uh. (laughs) I also love that this one's Freddy just as a Romeo dialer, kind (laughs) of. Calling up, seeing what's good, seeing if the lady picks up. If the guy picks up, not going to bother. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the ultimate Romeo dialer fantasy is Freddie's ability to uh, make your tongue come out of the woman's phone and lick <laughs> yeah. her ear. Um, th- let's thank God they don't have that technology out yet. <laughs> it's coming, though. I like, I mean, in regards to, like, the first half of this, I think, like, just because it's so brightly lit and, mm-hmm. like, there's a very bleak, like, globalist 90s sheen to it. <laughs> like, especially in the office place, like, the when uh, Heather's going to, like, New Line Cinemas mm-hmm. to, like, meet about 
like the new Nightmare on Elm Street movie, there's like a woman that introduces her at first uh, to one of the producers who's like wearing like a straight up Hillary Clinton like pantsuit. <laughs> it, it felt like Albert Brooks's The Muse, the scenes I, where he's trying to get funding in that. <laughs> I was going to say like the first hour of this movie is like equal parts like Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah, as much as yeah. it is a horror movie. <laughs> just, you know, from someone who's not Larry David's perspective, basically. <laughs> basically, and then it just has those like surrealistic moments and the dream sequences to offset it and make you you know remind yourself every 15 minutes or so that you are in fact in a horror film when her husband falls asleep at the wheel uh and dies and you know freddie slices open his chest it's such a strange thing of not knowing even whose dream we're watching you Mm -hmm. know because she's at home presumably asleep too and then he's falling asleep at the wheel and i don't know i think craven is so clever like with the screenplay uh setting up different people having dream sequences because you know it becomes the kid's aim at a certain point to go into the dream world with his mom. Uh, and he kind of gets that in the third act as they both go into Freddy's strange lair that he has. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, different people's dreams overlapping with each other in this film is a very strange, uh, surreal thing that I, I really love how uh, Craven approaches it. No, yeah. I mean, you, the classic... Uh phrase dream logic you know he's yeah. using nightmare logic here he kind of makes it eventually to a point you know you've had so many uh scenes end with you know a wake up you're like oh wait that was a dream it kind of meshes into like a you know a never-ending nightmare and i think it's interesting with freddie here because it's like he's coming into the world where people are just barely falling asleep for like two seconds yeah. and then he could like like i think with how the husband dies like he's falling asleep on the road and it just he, cl- him closing his eyes for two seconds it just tickles his nuts. Tickles his nuts. He's like, yeah, you like that? <laughs> um, yeah, and then slashes him in the chest. And it's just very interesting kind of like uh, just kind of the new rules he's playing with here. We talk about uh, how the movie's in conversation about like the reception of horror films and like what uh, like effect they have at large. I like how um, the original Nightmare on Elm Street is shown in this, like mostly on just sort of like shitty like TV. Mm-hmm. And I think that like is important because I feel like horror movies in particular have a very strong relationship. Like I know the way I watched a lot of the early classics were just like commercial interruptions like on television. And that's a genre that feels very tied to that the cable presentation. Yeah, totally. I mean, also you have, I believe his next film is Scream right yeah. uh where they're watching halloween on the the crappy letterboxed ver- or not letterboxed the crappy pan and scan version rather of that cinemascope classic <laughs> uh you know totally butchered uh, throughout like the back hour of scream uh and mm-hmm. so craven is very aware of like the things that him and his colleagues have created that are so personal to them also are kind of just background noise to the people who love them the most yeah <laughs> But to like, you know, it's kind of funny, right? You know, with John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, you know, he's kind of playing with this idea that like horror corrupts the children. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, it's like horror corrupts the children in like a literal sense in that like Craven is like the creator of the horror and the yeah. people who acted in the movie created this horror. And it's like, well, can this somehow 
traumatize your kid seeing like your mom getting slashed to death in a horror movie like what effect does, does that have on a kid and it totally does i mean yeah. like i i don't think horror movies are the reason that we have school shooters or whatever <laughs> uh or is it no <laughs> <laughs> but i i think that like on a very personal level and obviously a freudian one you know seeing an image of your mom uh you know made more beautiful for the movies obviously mm-hmm. and getting killed uh is gonna do some fucking damage to a child <laughs> Yeah, and it's so it's interesting to see like it's that that damage is physically comes to life. Yeah, I, and like obviously his father dies as well. the The child then becomes suicidal, and at that point, it, it really even before he tries to kill himself at the the play uh, the ground. Park. Yeah, yeah, which is really sad. But even before that, it kind of gets into a little bit of family melodrama mode that kind of reminded me of Twin Peaks when they're at the husband's funeral, you know, and she dives onto the coffin uh, and then Freddy appears and it becomes a nightmare scene, you know, uh, but just like the hysterical surrealism at a funeral reminded me of, uh, I think it's one of the early twin, like the second Twin Peaks episode or whatever when Laura's funeral is. And uh, it also reminded me, I, I said two other titles for examples of child actors at this period, but it really does feel more like the melodrama ones like AI or mm-hmm. um, what's the other one I was going to say? Oh, The Sixth Sense. Uh, both of the, like the tonal approach True. to the child performance there. And I feel like it's, it, especially in the first half, how like uh, the way Craven will like cut to him, like, you know, his mom will be having a conversation with someone at the front door. You know, maybe it's about his dad getting killed. Maybe it's a, his babysitter dropping by, but he always cuts back to the kid's reaction. And he has this kid framed so perfectly within the household to where he's like, you realize how like young and small he is, you know, Mm -hmm. he's like smaller than like some of the furniture and like just seeing him take in this trauma is just some of the scariest stuff in the movie, honestly. Uh, I mean, at one point, you know, when she meets with Wes Craven to basically get him to stop whatever's going on, he, he breaks it down to it's it's your choice to play Nancy one last time, <laughs> like, uh, which is very fucked up, but also in a way just telling her to confront her trauma kind of uh, without understanding the added layer of the child psychology at stake. <laughs> I, it's very funny that like he he's he's basically Sutter Kane in this yeah, movie. No, yeah, no, <laughs> this and our third feature especially really play into like just the immorality of filmmaking. Like it's a or the amorality of filmmaking rather. Mm. Like it's a, it's a fucked up thing. You know, there's yeah. not really any good behind it. You're kind of just doing it at the expense of everyone involved. No, yeah, I mean, even that opening scene that's a dream sequence where she dreams about, like, the ana- the animatronic claw coming to life and injuring people on set. That just shows, like, the haphazardness of a film set. Oh, you know, yeah. and, like, there's, like, a, you know what I was talking about, how he, you know, frames the kids so small. There's, like, a scene where he's just framed a bunch of, uh, over a bunch of, like, c-stands and stuff like that and it's like that, that shit could follow him just like any minute like <laughs> oh yeah. yeah anytime i see like a behind the scenes thing like even in james l brooks's i'll do anything yeah just seeing a child dwarfed by all of that heavy ass equipment that could at any point swing down and kill them <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's not a place for children no definitely not <laughs> um you know so we get a bunch of stuff in the hospital before we go into the dream world for the third act kind of uh the hospital stuff's great you know classic uh People who work at hospitals, they're looking for your best interests, but they don't believe in monsters. Yeah, and they're evil, and they'll drug you. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> they'll uh, admit you. You know, getting back to the West, it is kind of, I guess this is maybe him trying to like, because I think there's a lot of requests for sequels of his movies. You know, this happened with Scream afterwards, but like, 
So he must have got an opportunity to make this movie because it is a very funny movie. Just to be like, yeah, let's make a meta movie about like Wes Craven, and he plays himself, and yeah. like everyone's like, yeah, you know, that's great. Like, like, let's go with that. So it's kind of cool that this was just even made in that way. But they know Freddie sells, so Craven yeah. is probably flexing his muscle there. So after she crosses the freeway with her child when they escape the hospital in a terrifying set piece, just oh, beautiful. They go back into the house to confront, you know, uh, the evil. <laughs> we even see, we get that exchange with John. Why are you calling me Nancy, John? Why are you calling me John? And the change of clothes that happens within a cut of Heather, you realize like, oh, reality has completely given over to metafiction but it's not just you like she realizes it at that moment too i mean you mentioned like a comparison to twin peaks like earlier at the beginning but that moment there where it's like why are you like why are you calling me nancy like what that year is this yeah exactly <laughs> so nancy enters the dream world then through a portal in her son's blanket uh, and then falls out of Freddy's statue mouth uh, <laughs> into this like digital matte painting looking thing uh, and then falling into this steamy cavernous ruins of Freddy's world. Freddy's hell or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I, I like how um this happens in the funeral scene too where like um you know how she retreats like through the bed sheets. It's yeah. like then there'll just be like this hallway of like the texture that's made out of the texture of what she was, you know, what is acting as the portal, like the funeral, uh, the funeral scene, like the portal is like coffin inside layers. Mm -hmm. And it's just a small detail. I was like, that's, that took a lot of effort just to have that, but I like it a lot. Oh, I mean, to get that kind of wider shot once she's crawling through it, uh, under the bed, like got to make a pretty big uh bedspread for that shot <laughs> i got a say. real big blanket for yeah it. some good fort building by the yeah, exactly. people on new yeah. nightmare great I, production design specifically the fort building elements i mean while i think it is like easy to like do the mirroring stuff from the beginning at the end i think it is really cool that like with the furnaces in freddy's hell world is like pretty much the same from the little opening like fake out we get of the movie set but i think this time around is more meaningful because it's like again sort of reminding you of the artifice of it all because you've already seen like something very close to that set oh yeah and so while they're down there you know freddie traps uh the son dylan in his like incinerator <laughs> before the mom's able to like stab him uh, and then, like, the, the long tongue that had previously came through the phone, uh, Dylan is able to, like, stab. Uh, and then Freddy burns and very quickly turns into the devil. And then they roll out of bed. <laughs> it's, cra- it's a crazy... That, yeah, the incinerator scene to Freddy's kill is insane. And it, yeah. Craven's letting the special effects fly. Very disturbing image of... Because, you know, Freddy... It's kind of hard to be afraid of Freddy, especially if you've seen these movies. You know, he's he kind of takes on a comedic role, kind of like not purely comedic, but like in the fourth and fifth one, they have him say like, you know, fucking Schwarzenegger to your, you know, yeah. one liners. But in this one, he doesn't say much. I think he has like one punchline. So he is like rendered a little bit more scarier. And that scene where he's just like about to eat the child and his face gets bigger. It's just like, it's a little absurd, but I'm like, this is kind of off-putting. It's kind of disturbing. Yeah, I mean, the shot of him 
floating like in the moon kind mm-hmm. of uh right i think it's right before the freeway set piece yeah is it feels like it's a painting from a kid's book you know mm-hmm. uh but it's also really kind of scary like it's a it's a painting from a kid's book that would give me nightmares you know True. <laughs> or a picture from a kid's book i don't know why i said painting i do like the special effects are somewhat painterly they're yeah. though, they're very artificial kind of a random sign note i do like uh illustrations drawn by kids hmm. they just look interesting <laughs> Okay. That's a little <laughs> sus of you to say, but whatever. I am putting it all out there. <laughs> I, I dug it overall. I mean, I feel like it's definitely like not as like masterful of like a meta text as the other two films in our pairing, but that doesn't mean like it's any less of an enjoyable time. I especially dig how it wraps up again, sort of like the narrative, like going in on itself where it's like, um, there she's reading the script uh to the little boy there which is like kind of like it's it's sweet in the sense where it's like they've been through this they've conquered it and now she's like telling it as the story that it is but i think it's also like kind of funny i think there are like weird moments in this where like i i don't know I, i'm not sure it, like necessarily how intentional it is but like especially at points where they're trying to like hit like oh how is how are horror movies like affecting like the kids especially in the hospital i think there's something where it's like i don't know how much like craven himself actually believes they're fucking up kids yeah but i don't know it was a good time i'm giving this one four bullets what about you malcolm i'm gonna give this one four bullets as well but yeah i think my only criticism of it is like sometimes you could kind of like some plot points hit and they kind of feel, you know, very uh, telegraphed from along beforehand and whatnot. But like, it's, it's a fun journey and it's like, it's fun to see Craven kind of play around in this world that he's created. Like, yeah, it's just funny that like Freddie has his own like little like temple or whatever that he just plays around with. And I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's good. (laughs) <laughs> how about you eddie yeah i mean this is a great film and i think it's another edition of the sixth sense uh because i also see four bullets uh, uh yeah it's a great film it's like i don't know it just raises enough questions that it doesn't answer to be like a lingering thought-provoking kind of thing mm-hmm. about Wes Craven in general and like franchise versus authorship and also just like those movies in particular. Uh, and it's also like a really strange amalgamy of like melodrama and meta horror, which is a very strange combo mm-hmm. to me. Uh, but I think he's really successful at pulling off that balancing act. So uh, yeah, four bullets. We'll be right back on extended clip. I dream a scene at night. I write it down in the morning. Beyond that, uh, your guess is as good as mine where it's going. Well, at least tell me what it's about so far. Coffee. Thanks. I can tell you what the nightmare is about so far. It's it's about this entity, whatever you want to call it. It's it's old. It's very old. It's existed in different forms at different times. About the only thing about it that stays the same is what it lives for, really. What is that? Oh, the murder of innocence to be as long as a movie you can play it over any movie that's like maybe 90 minutes like a commentary track yeah exactly this is the official extended clip commentary track for mario bava's bay of blood <laughs> that'd be funny just to say something like that. 
just title it that. Or just do like the on cinema thing where like we're obviously not watching the movie, but trying yeah. to like pretend like we are for eighty minutes or whatever. Oh wow, that's a great shot. <laughs> <laughs> what a shot. <laughs> Is that the bay? Uh, no, that's just that's a lake. <laughs> Uh, so second intermission time for everyone's second favorite non-movie review segment, the email segment. Uh, we actually got a couple emails this week for our Halloween special. Our first one comes from friend of the pod and past guest, Evan Amaral. He says, Hey there, fellas. I've been seriously enjoying your horror episodes this month, which have definitely given me some great recommendations. For your Halloween episode, I wanted to write and tell you guys one of my favorite stories. See, I put out the prompt for scary stories, and I'm glad. All right, I'm going to hit the lights. Yeah, I'll put on some music. Cue music, DJ. (laughs) I thought you were going to turn off the lights. Oh. Do you want to? Sure. (laughs) Let's do it. Wait, hold oh, on. Oh man, the eerie glow of just your laptop screen. You good? You ready to you got your nightlight on? Yeah, Malcolm, please turn off the lights for extended clip after dark. Very scary. My dad's always been a practical joker. And when I was in seventh and eighth grade, we moved far out into the country. So he always took it upon himself to carve out an entire path in the woods and decorated as a haunted trail which we used to raise money for animal rescues and just for fun raising money just for fun (laughs) not very anti-capitalist of you evan yeah the scary part's the greed (laughs) we had hanging corpses and limbs fog machines the whole nine yards my friend and i loved to hide out in some graves we dug next to the trail and pop out and scare people but every year we did it, one of my dad's friends would dress up as Leatherface and take out <laughs> take one of the chains off of his chainsaw and bring it. So it was a working, real-ass chainsaw, just minus the actual part that could hurt people, and the thing that went roar when he got it started. Uh, so he'd sit at the end of the trail and wait for people to come out, then he'd fire it up and chase them all the way back to their cars. <laughs> One year he scared a lady so badly That she not only dropped her toddler On the way back to her car But also completely soiled her pants And had to borrow stuff from our house To clean up the front yard Dad still considers that one of his biggest successes Beautiful story That's awesome That was beautiful Uh, That makes me want to do that Like I want to scare people Like dress like just have a, a farm and just like carve up some cows and scare people. I saw some guys running around with knives once when I was trick or treating, just like spooking people, and I wanted no part of that. Anyway, he continues. Anyways, do you guys have any fun Halloween memories or stories you'd like to share? Any good scares in particular? Uh, I hope you're all doing well, enjoying the holiday as best you can this year. Best wishes, Evan. Well, happy Halloween, Evan. Thanks for the story. Um,. Yeah, I guess the one time a guy ran at my friend with, like, what was definitely a rubber knife, I I, I was, like, the shit was scared out of me. It was, like, the first time I trick-or-treated without my parents. And, uh, yeah, scared the shit out of me. What about you guys? Um, I have no story, so I'll ask a question. Um, what what age did you guys stop trick-or-treating? Like, 13, maybe? 12? 
I at some point in middle school. I it think was I, like yeah, that's it. I think eighth grade was I, my last year. I had a really pathetic one in eighth grade where me and my friend just like were wearing like uh, jerseys like of our favorite teams. <laughs> we're like yeah, we're athletes. That is that <laughs> the last the last the last Halloween where you trick or treat is it does feel bad. You're that's like, you always have a bad one where someone says, "Aren't you a little old to be doing this?" Like, uh, yeah, I guess so. Shouldn't you be out <laughs> drinking and partying? Yeah. You should be getting pussy yeah. instead of uh, looking for candy. Telling a 13-year-old to go get pussy. <laughs> <laughs> nice Captain America costume. Why don't you get some pussy instead? Instead of this Kit Kat bar. Uh, <laughs> instead of munching on treats, you get you get down to business. Become a man. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I don't think I have any really, like, scary Halloween stories. I mean, like, I, the one, like, Halloween one that comes to mind was from college. Um, we would have, like, Halloween parties, like, every year. And then one year we tried to get, like, fog machines, like, set up, like, in our, like, basement. And, um, they, like, I was like, okay, that's cool, whatever, we, we were doing that. Like, the, the basement filled up with fog, like, the night before the party. Because we were like, okay, we've got to test to see if they work. But no one, like, we were so fucking stupid that we didn't realize you had to, like, unplug or, like, take out the batteries from your smoke alarm. And so just the smoke alarms, like, started going off, like, constantly. And they were connected to, like, an alarm system. So the fire department came. And these big burly firemen had to... Because we couldn't, like... We just... One of my roommates had to stand, like, constantly pressing the smoke detectors off. Because by that time, the whole room was... The basement was filled with smoke. We were just opening up windows, trying to fan smoke out. Mm -hmm. And then a fireman just came down there, much larger than all of us, and just rip the smoke alarm off he's like don't let this like if you do like fucking like you can do this tomorrow i'm not working and i <laughs> felt like such a pussy hell yeah that's that's you know one time I, i'll give a short story one time i went to a <laughs> halloween party and i met a drug dealer named king satan <laughs> and i still have him on snapchat i don't think he's doing dealing drugs anymore so good for him what if he just got locked up? Nah, he's like posting. Oh, he's active on Snapchat. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I thought you meant he just like you didn't see his <laughs> stories anymore. Yeah, if I didn't see he's his stories anymore, Snapchat? I was gonna be like, he's still he must be selling for real. Now. Aren't you a little old for that? <laughs> Shouldn't you be getting pussy <laughs> instead of posting Snapchats? <laughs> One time he posted a, a check to his lawyer that was like fourteen thousand dollars. He like flexed a check that he was gonna give to his lawyer. Damn. Our next uh, email comes from Robert. It says, scary question. Are there any famous movie ghosts you would fuck? This does not include movie stars who have died uh, since in real life and are now ghosts. So no Vic Morrow, Shirley Temple, etc. Odd <laughs> uh, choices. <laughs> I'm strictly... I'm referring strictly to ghosts that were already in ghost form when they played ghosts in the movies where they were ghosts. Hope you guys have a very spooky Halloween, Robbie. I'm sure there's there's like a movie where like a hot girl ghosts sucks a guy off. Well, okay. Uh, I mean, doesn't Slimer's girlfriend suck off Dan Aykroyd? Or was it Slimer? It's Slimer that sucks off Dan yeah. Aykroyd. So, oh, so he was pretty progress. Okay, he was crossing multiple boundaries there. I don't know. I don't Dude, know. Why do you have to define things? We're like talking that? about Ghostbusters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I just you know. Get my footing right. I um I don't know. I mean I'd fuck I'd like, 
probably most like ghosts <laughs> for the experience of it. That's like, true. I think like just pick any if ghost. You, if you if a ghost came to you from like a movie, like uh, like and they're <laughs> of age. Um, in, in ghost form, and they're like, "Yeah, I'll suck you off, or I'll fuck you." Like, I would kind of do it just to feel what that's like. What is ghost pussy like? That's true. That's that's what you got to say to kids, or tr- go get some ghost <laughs> pussy on Halloween. Um, we really are going extended clip after dark with the lights out here. Um, wait, I just want to give a. There's some hot ghosts in Red Spirit Lake, and they do sexual acts to the people and then make them kill themselves afterwards. So I'd want that to happen. Sounds pretty ideal. Yeah. Our next email comes from Valerie, uh, email segment MVP. Uh, She says, hey, fellas, over the past few weeks, I've been thinking of questions to ask about movies. And in that time, most of those ideas were asked much worse in some form in the quote tweet prompt industrial complex that has taken over twitter in the last couple of months uh that being said i do have some questions related to this season the halloween season first off for halloween night itself uh if you choose to watch a horror movie uh that night is it a consistent one pick that you return to or just whatever mood you're in secondly what type of horror movie would you say is your personal favorite and lastly, what are or were your go-to Halloween candies? My personal favorites are Reese's and Milky Ways. Happy Halloween. Sincerely, Valerie. Well, happy Halloween, Valerie. We already answered that. Uh, it, oh, let's see if I can remember. You said Haribo Gummy Bears slash Skittles. Uh, Malcolm said something stupid, and I said Diet Coke. <laughs> yeah, you said, you said Reese's. Reese's. You said Reese's, which yeah, I actually I put in say, like top huh? five. Top five. Yeah. <laughs> Insulting Valerie now? Insulting people who ride in? <laughs> being kind of callous it's just like such a basic <laughs> choice though i just i don't i don't i don't care about candy i care about meat and potatoes Dude, i love getting <laughs> i love getting two candy bars and like freezing them and making them last like a month just taking a bite of a candy sure. bar every I, night i like a take five take five is a good that's a that's a poll like you wouldn't think of those yeah. but they're good you want a deep cut eddie i'll give you deep cuts <laughs> you want to you want to wake up at 2 30 in the morning and have one square of a kinder bueno talk to me when you do that <laughs> <laughs> that's how real heads do it uh we'll be right back on extended clip malcolm can you turn the lights back on please yeah sure <laughs> i was into that crap once you know these two girls and i i got a friend who made some movies you got a camera and all that stuff we did some stag films. I couldn't sell a damn things. <laughs> I have a wife. Back. You know what I do to her? You know what I do to her? You should start doing some of that stuff. And we're back on extended clip. I'm sorry we didn't finish your email, Valor. We got so wrapped up in the candy. <laughs> Our sweet tooth were activated. We turned into naughty little children. Uh The C movie, the Z movie, really, of this week's triple features, Last House on Dead End Street, 1977, Roger Watkins. Uh, Malcolm, this is an old fave of yours, right? Yeah, I, this is like, I think, my fourth time watching this movie, second time this month, and uh, it was just nice to revisit what feels like an old friend now. And, uh, you know, you guys are talking about being disturbed at this point. At this point, I'm Roger Watkins. I'm just enjoying all the debauchery going on, all the fun and games. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but Roger Watkins, the protagonist, he just looks like cool Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I got I got time to grow. I'm a, you know, I'm a small boy. I'm going to grow one day. Just buy a leather jacket, honestly. <laughs> and a hacksaw. See, I knew I'd get more respect if I started killing people and doing bad things like that. People are like, oh, you're cool now. 
It's um, this gangster culture we live in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Roger Watkins uh, plays Terry Hawkins, who has just been released from prison, and now he wants to start making some movies. Uh, we meet a sleazy producer of stag films and, you know, the depraved crew that he runs with, and they have no idea what they're in for. Uh, so, yeah, you see Terry, you know, lure everyone in, you know, a classic getting the gang together first half of the movie. And uh, he has this abandoned school building of lo-fi drone horror uh, where he, you know, even makes a film in the first half where a blind man is sexually pleasured and then killed. Uh, all of the visitors of this otherworldly film set are victims, except for the crew who makes it with him, uh, as we live out a snuff film, basically. Uh, what feels like, I don't know, it's like slower than real time, even, that back half of the film. It's only like a 75, 78-minute film yeah. or something like that, but man, that last like half hour is pure torture, but I loved it. Yeah, yeah, Rewatching this movie, I kind of got the formatting of it down to, you know a T in my head and it's literally like the first half is like him getting the crew. You got to assemble your crew. You got to find your cinematographer, some actresses and it gives some good like one scene background information on them. There's even a very kind of somber scene of like a, a woman deciding to get into prostitution just because she wants to eat. That is it sticks out because it is like one of the only sympathetic moments mm -hmm. in the movie. And then the next half is just, you know, we got the people let's make the movie and they, <laughs> they have a lot of fun making it. What did you think about this one, JT? Oh, yeah. This was absolutely crazy. And I just like ever since um, I feel like I, I've been on the Matt Farley bullshit, I have really appreciated like working with like next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I mean, I don't know. Malcolm, do you know more about like Watkins oh. like background? This, this has a, a very fun background. This yeah, this one, there was a three hour cut of this movie that played at both Cannes and Berlin <laughs> uh, under a different title. And like I got to track down someone who was at one of those festival screenings. I know. Is no one like alive? Did everyone walk out? Mm -hmm. Like there's no real uh, record of what was in the longer cut. And there's been plenty of restorations. But every time it's like, no surprises, guys. This isn't going to be, you know, the three hour cut or anything. Well, it makes that even more baffling because this is a 76 minute movie as mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, you know, assumingly there's a three hour cut. This is a movie made for about three thousand dollars. <laughs> And Roger Watkins spent most of that money on meth, literally. And like, so <laughs> I think he spent like, yeah, he spent like, like something like 2100 of that budget on meth. Jesus Christ. So it, 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 and every penny of that is on screen. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, I, I mean, in the like brief little research I did about Watkins, like I found out he had like studied, like he'd worked like under Nick Ray yeah. and Otto Preminger. Mm -hmm. And it just like. This feels like the rage of someone who could have, like, done... I mean, I don't think... I mean, I, there's certainly a lot of glee in that, but just, like, I don't know. So, like, the dirty hatred I feel towards the rich sometimes and just being dirty and poor. Yeah, well, you know what's, I, what's great about this? It's like, it's not... It's it's Of course, it's a big middle finger to the industry, right? Yeah. It's a big fuck the industry movie. But it's even down to, like... It's not even just the big fat cats. You know, the fat cats are not even in sight. You can't see the fat cats. No, it's the broke independent producers who rip off the artists Ex that they employ. Exactly. And and this is that's a you know, it's 
you know, people, you know, on their socialist podcast, they like to say <laughs> small business is bad. And it's like, yeah, some small film productions have been known to fuck people over. Yeah. Make people do things for, you know, smaller pay than, you know, they're worth, you know, Borat too. Guilty. You know what you're <laughs> doing. But um, yeah, so I think that that aspect of it, I, I really enjoy. And like, this is like, this is even like digging into the meta-ness of it. Like, this is even more meta than I realized before. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this film had an unknown crew for decades until Roger Watkins came a- a forward. Like, all the <laughs> actors remained anonymous, and he uses a pseudonym, and, you know, it's like it really plays into the reality of this being a quote-unquote snuff film, you know? And I don't know, we, we or at least I watched the Vinegar Syndrome restoration, which looks beautiful, but also still very grainy. And like, you can only imagine the dupey tapes of this and how much they probably did look like actual snuff footage. <laughs> yeah. Um, I watched this on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube. Check it out for free. <laughs> <laughs> I will shout out though the most recent restoration of it like the the textures of the film stock are very heavily felt uh it's not like an overly uh clean restoration you know it's very true to the the grindhouse aesthetic you know Yeah Vinegar Syndrome good company they they do a lot of you know nasty horror movies on Blu-ray yeah. so that's good Uh so you as you said uh run into the unsuccessful stag film producer which kind of reminds me of High Mom the De Palma yeah. if you guys have seen that one and yeah. you know Denise Nero tries to make some porno uh, with some sleazy, low-budget stag film producer. Not even stag film. That guy makes hardcore. Uh, but, like, he instead turns to, like, radicalism uh, in, like, interactive theater. Uh, and then I guess the alternate choice is this movie where, you know, <laughs> making indie stag films doesn't work out. So you kill people and make snuff films instead. And uh, this is a, a great little scene we have here, right? This is kind of like a... Because we have him assembling the crew, and this is kind of almost like a intermission between all that, and like you see, a, you know, a party of you know some highfalutin porn enjoyers, and we we have some uh, public lashings of a, a white woman in blackface by a disabled uh, butler. Yeah, I couldn't tell if that <sighs> was a party crazy. or a film set for like the first three minutes of that scene. Yeah, uh, and then it's revealed to just be like the party where all those people are hanging out. But I just thought it was some gonzo porn that someone else was watching. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and then Watkins like invents DVD commentary, and this <laughs> when they're like, uh, when they're just like just malaise and just like oh well this isn't fucking this party fucking sucks yeah as that's going on in the next room and then just like chewing out like the pornography or tearing it to shreds i mean it's it's insane it's insane how long this the whipping sequence lasts mm-hmm. and like how many different tones it takes because it's like it's so absurd to the word it's like this is you kind of have to laugh out of you know your nervousness or whatever yeah. that is and then it just kind of goes back to being kind of disturbing a little bit and then the fact you know i think you're right i am like is a porno being sh- shown here because like the first scene is like the the husband of that woman like near like a, a projector and stuff mm-hmm. like that and then once it's revealed that it's actually happening it's a it's quite a sight and then the fact that that guy is a porno director and has to show him like his shitty softcore porn yeah, in yeah the next yeah. and it has one of the best lines in the movie with the angry producer, it's like, you're showing me your fucking 10th grade pornography while your wife's getting whipped in the next room. (laughs) (laughs) And he makes a good point. He does make a good point. I mean, that software that he shows is so funny too. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a well aware thing of Watkins to make this like 
trying to not even have artistic qualities to it, but just like a realistic quality kind mm-hmm. of. And it's just like, oh, yeah, the dog's in the way for a little bit. And, you know, she's just getting ready in the bath. It's like, no, nobody's going to jack off to this. Like, I, But, you know, it's funny. I remember there's this thing in San Francisco you could go to and they uh, it's just like a big arcade. It's near like the pier. I don't know what it's called. But like mm-hmm. they have like an old fashioned peep show thing that you could put nickels in. And it's ex- it feels exactly like that, except there's a little more nudity in this porno in this movie. But literally, you just see a woman, you know, undress for the shower, watch her shower, then you just watch her go about her day, like you watch her grocery shop Damn. and stuff. Like it was a very funny thing to experience one time i was in san francisco uh visiting a friend and we went into this bookstore that we didn't realize was an adult bookstore until we went in but it wasn't like you know in every city in the world or every city in the u.s adult bookstore means like sex toy shop Mm -hmm. Uh, this was actually a bookstore that was just like erotic books you know because it's san francisco yeah and so we bought no actually my friend stole a little flip image book uh called the puppetry of the penis and it was just (laughs) like a guy contorting his dick in like a flip book thing Mm -hmm. it was pretty funny Mm -hmm. and the commentary like you said jt the dvd commentary is great because i love the I love the porn producer in this scene and it's kind of laying down the thesis for this movie. It's like people don't want sex. This is you need we need something new. This is boring. You know, <laughs> sex is bad. I think uh Roger Watkins is like nobody wants sex anymore. <laughs> Just like very like sinister statements. Like this is a yeah. very pessimistic movie even for like a snuff film, a movie about a guy making a snuff film. It's like someone doing so because this is the logical endpoint of their position in the world yeah is for me to while out and you know cut some people up i love the first snuff film he makes when he's with the two girls and the Mm -hmm. blind guy that uh watches the abandoned building and he has like like that greek god mask on and he's wearing that orson wells like cape uh, he's walking around with uh and he's just like I don't know. I guess it's the ego of filmmaking that turns his charisma completely 180 uh, when he's making that first film. You know, he's like a down and out criminal in the beginning. He's like scraping people together. But once he makes that movie the first time, his charm totally turns on. And, you know, he even recruits an actress and has sex with her. And like the there's like this crazy mirror shot where you see three different reflections of them in like a pretty static and like flat sex scene. Uh, that just adds so much like visual uh, density just with like some mirror trickery, you know, there's, there's a lot of visual density in this mm-hmm. movie. Like I think I remember first time I brought this up on the pod, I kind of did it very dismissively kind of like, Oh, it's a gimmick movie by like a meth addict or whatever. And then like the, every time I watch it, like the, the sequencing of images is so very particular, even at the very beginning where you see him kind of walking around this abandoned building and you get oh, like yeah. these weird rooftop POVs and you kind of, you know, you get ready for the slanted and jaggedness of the, you know, this movie, it's this very obtuse movie. Uh, so once he finally gets everyone in the building and the plan is set in motion and the producer and uh, his cohorts are visiting, it's just like, pure black on the set like there's this really long tracking shot where you literally can't see anything you just kind of feel the movement through the change in the texture of the film grain and the footsteps obviously uh and the producer just like what the fuck is going on uh before the ultimate exhibition of violence and like grotesquery goes on and it's awesome i love it it's beautiful 
uh, very vividly red blood. He busts the mask out again. Uh, some classic like fetishistic knife shots with the uh, l- one light source being caught on the blade, kind of in mm-hmm. a reflection. Uh, just, just great. The ass end of this being all just like graphic, but like powerful imagery. You get a lot of beautiful stuff, like the the sucking off the deer hoof oh, as the penis. So weird. It's like, ugh. It's and the mask shit, like that stuff where it's just like, it's it's chaotically like I don't know. It's just the it's it's so frightening because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why yeah. it's present. Uh, the the directing scene too where they make the director direct a movie also comes to mind the great use of the mass and kind of like yeah the manicness of what's going on because that scene's not even that graphic compared to what's you know about to happen but it, it is just you know funny to see these motherfuckers dance around end of Salo-esque just a, you know waiting on the the torture they're about to impend on their victims and just like the like on the level of like it being watkins like a meth addict screaming i'm directing this <laughs> fucking movie like over and over and over again that just the, the imagining the set and like the lifestyles of all this it's yeah. like it's so fucking depressing. It's hardcore, dude. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, that I'm directing this fucking movie scene is incredible. You know, uh, he gives direction to an actor uh, in this like very strange set where they make like the false front of a room in like a house, you know, <laughs> that like is like actually kind of well lit and looks normal compared to the rest of the set. And the actor just moves one foot, you know, forward a little bit and Watkins just breaks the scene and just starts screaming, I'm directing this fucking movie while he throws a tantrum for what feels like an hour. (laughs) Yeah, there's some really choice line readings from Watkins in this movie. Um, You know, another one where he's in that same scene I was referring to earlier where he's like, pay attention to the movie. Just like, (laughs) just like very weird and like obnoxious. And it's just kind of. Like you said, like it doesn't make much sense, so it makes it even that much more unsettling. Yeah, I mean, the dubbing is like obviously very bad, uh, or at least like low budget, and it shows, you know. Uh, but just like a lot of Italian horror movies, like that kind of adds to the surrealism of it, especially the early scenes where he's gathering the crew. Uh, there's one scene where he goes into this one guy's tiny, shitty apartment, and after he walks out, the guy's just like, Yep, yeah, 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 yep, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. yep. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll see you later, man. All right, all right. Bye. Now, as soon as I get out of here, I'll meet you, okay? Now, now don't forget, don't forget. We're going to get something good going there, right? Okay. Okay, take it easy, Terry. Yeah, 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 baby. Take it easy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, baby. I'll see you. Yeah, take it easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be up there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and just, like, the early, like, narration, I think, like, gets you, like, it, and, like, mixed with the music gets you into, like, a weird, like, you're in this fucked up head. You're yeah. there, right there with him. No, the soundtrack itself is, like, kind of... Maybe this is the YouTube rip. Maybe I'm, you know, this is all bullshit. But like, it's very tinny yeah. quality to it, and you know, matches well with kind of like, you know, the film grain that we see. And I think it definitely, like, something like the torture scene would definitely not look and feel as visceral if we're shooting it on a DSLR. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, that score is phenomenal. But one of the great punctuations is when it goes kind of silent, like. Uh, mm-hmm. One scene early on when you switch the perspective of the cameraman 
and you see one of the guys that they're torturing like running up a staircase mm-hmm. and it just goes silent and all you hear is the whirring of that 16 millimeter or eight millimeter camera as they're running up that staircase and it's just terrifying you think they're gonna throw his body off the fucking fourth store and like a lot of the you know many great directors watkins recognizes the threat of a camera yeah on someone and we get a lot of great creepy shots of you know the cinematographer wearing a mask and kind of doing a swarming like circling shot around the victims and I, I, it was very the first kill the first you know uh snuff film he makes you kind of get you get a you see the cinematographer doing that and then you get the pov of what his camera was saying and it's just, i don't know it was very meta but very effective horror filmmaking i was just curious do you know how easy it is or like how I, how where can I find Watkins' other movies? Have you seen anything more? I've you see it's it's pretty hard. There's one that's out there that I I don't know the name. And for a long while, there was only two listed on Letterboxd. But I think now there's a lot more. But I think people are adding his porn to Letterboxd because he's he's made money as a porn director. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he has one other um, horror movie that he directed, and I think he was involved with a couple others. I think he wrote one and I think, uh, it was, he might've collaborated with, I think either Doris Wishman or Roberta Finley, some other, you know, low budget horror gods. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure which one, but yeah, what he's a, an enigmatic, (laughs) what is it? Enigma, enigma, enigmatic figure. That's how you say the word. So I guess, uh, corruption is available through vinegar syndrome. Mm hmm. Uh, oh, it's an Easter egg on the last house on Dead End Street Blu-ray. Shit. Uh, and then Shadows of the Mind. I that's uh, the other one. Yeah, one person I know is <clears throat> one person I know is logged it, but like doesn't look like an easy one to find. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I said something earlier about these metafiction horror movies working with like the uh, the author of the horror being an intermediary beh- uh, between reality and fiction. And I think in this one, Watkins isn't even like immediate. He's just creating uh, reality for these people. Like this is the new reality. You're living in it. We're going to kill you. And that's the end of story. <laughs> it's not blurring the lines of reality yeah. and fiction, you know? Uh, and so the actual movie though, cause that's his character doing that. The actual movie obviously draws a lot of those distinctions as well. This is a guy who was a crazy drug addict who like, couldn't get another movie properly made it seems like and uh was very much an outsider artist uh and uh yeah i think this is a masterpiece i'm going five bullets i'm gonna go five bullets as well you know i every time i've watched it gave him a four and a half what kind of pussy shit is that i gotta give it the five <laughs> and um yeah i think yeah what's so great about this watkins it's a star performance it's you know the other ones right you see craven and carpenter even though carpenter didn't write in the mouth of madness which is kind of funny but uh they're they're kind of messing with like established personas here where it's like watkins is like i'm gonna you know i'm gonna become a star through this you know a lot of talk about you know you might even make an oscar through this (laughs) (laughs) stuff like that and like he's he's obvious he's putting himself at the forefront and he's, you know, unlike the, the, you know, the other two movies we're talking about, they're kind of concerned of like, what are the repercussions of all this? You know, if there are any, and it's like him, it's like, you know, let's make a real movie. Let's cut someone's skin open. You know, it's a, uh, it's really great. And I, just some more production details that I remember. I think the ab- abandoned building that they're using, 
believe it or not, is a real abandoned building. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, you know, set design just makes itself. Although the set design of the cinematographer's apartment with the film strips mm-hmm. all hanging off the wall, very well done. Oh, yeah. JT, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to do my classic move of I'm bumping this up. I mean, I don't want to do any pussy shit, but not just <laughs> because you intimidated me, um, but because of talking through this, I mean, like, I don't know. I knew what I was watching when it was happening that I was in love with this, especially like with Eddie was saying like about like it's just the it's such a pure work of like impressive outsider art that like takes all of its flaws and like owns them as like the the what this project is working at. Mm-hmm. And there are just so many lines that feel like they're so fucking funny. They're just like like you could have pulled from like an old Bill Hicks set like <laughs> set where the one that I wrote down where it's like I think they're talking about like like how they have to amp up the porn they're like this country's built on innovation and just like it's it's so gruesome because you know the circumstances in which the movie was made and just like how like dark it will be but also just so gleeful with that like mm-hmm. it's it's insane and frantic, and I uh, I'm definitely gonna try to scrape up those other Watkins because I hope they're uh, this crazy. Yeah, one of the most joyfully miserable movies of all time. That's why I love it. I think that's just about gonna wrap up the Halloween special, the all night movie marathon <laughs> of the ni- three movies. The nightmare finally ends. The nightmare <laughs> before Halloween, <laughs> and it's Santa instead of that skeleton guy. <laughs> uh, so next week, uh, let's see our next Patreon episode, by the way, $2 a month on Patreon gets you a bonus episode every single week. And our last one was on Suspiria. Our next one will come out on election day. And we're talking about head of state where Chris Rock runs for president. That's who I'm voting for. Me too. I'm writing them in vote. <laughs> <laughs> Look at if you guys could see how serious my face is right now. We've put, we've put down the mics. We stopped the jokes vote <laughs> what about you jt who are you voting for um i think i'm gonna write in chris rock as well i was tied between writing in chris rock or hillary clinton and uh i mean after seeing uh, i think had this it- is her year though <laughs> <laughs> hillary takeover uh, but we'll talk about head of state later next week's main feed episode nathan smith returning champion uh will be joining us once again east coast west coast connection we're talking about Alan Rudolph's Welcome to L.A. and Damon Packard's Reflections of Evil. Uh, Nathan will give the Brooklyn perspective (laughs) on these two West Coast classics. I can't think of uh, two different experiences of L.A. You know that contrast more than Welcome (laughs) to L.A. and uh, Reflections of Evil. So I'm excited for that one. Yeah, I'm ready to bring Packard back on the pod. It's going to be a great time. Hell yeah, man! Let's 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 get Packard on the pod. (laughs) No, no, I'm intimidated by artists. Uh, we could probably, eh, maybe we do that. Yeah, but well, not, I, tom- not next week. Yeah. yeah, well, not next. Jeez. Uh, but Nathan's also going to do a bonus episode with us on Oliver Stone's JFK, yet another edition of Everybody Must Get Stoned. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Thank you for putting up with us horror novices talking about your favorite genre all month. Um, yeah, do you guys have any other things to plug at the end? Um... Come down to my house. I'll cook you a meal.
Uh, good email segment this week. Extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Keep them coming, my friend. Yeah, please ask us questions. Uh, see you next week.